this week on Hope for the Broken. We have a new body. We belong to a new body of believers, and therefore we have more that unites us than that which makes us different. And I want us to leave here today as a unified local body of Christ surrounded by Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. And so it's amazing that we should work to protect such a unity that is in this beautiful thing called church. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Made New. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part four titled, A New Body. Let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We started a few weeks ago a new sermon series as we're working our way this summer through the book of Ephesians. And we've entitled this sermon series Made New, and the reason why is because one of the major themes in the book of Ephesians is this concept of being made new, that in Christ we have a new identity. In Christ we have a new focus, a tool of prayer. In Christ we have new life that we once were dead in our trespasses and sins but because of christ we are made alive and today we're going to study the fact that we have a new body now i know when some of y'all hear that you're like man i need a new body like you're thinking physically you know i need to lose some weight and all that i'm I'm in that club but that's not the kind of body i'm talking about this morning the new body that i'm talking about is that we belong to this body of believers called the church And so that is our new body. That is our new family as we are going to discover. We're going to be in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 2 here this morning as we take a look at that very thing. And as I was thinking through this message, I got to thinking about rivalries that are often common in our our culture. And I think it'll make sense whenever we get into uh, our study this morning why I'm thinking about rivalries Uh, But, uh, you know, I think of uh, key rivalries that have grown to be commonplace. Let's see if you can identify with any of these rivalries, right? You got Texas and Oklahoma, right? That's a that's a that's a rivalry. You got Mac. How many Mac uh, users are there in the room versus PC, right? Y'all know what PC stands for, right? Okay. All right. We don't need to go there. All right. There's Republican or Democrat. Then there's Bluebell. Versus Blue Bunny. Now, the only way you like Blue Bunny ice cream over Blue Bell is if you're a communist, right? That's, it's not biblical to like Blue Bunny. I'm, that's harsh. I shouldn't have really said that. I, I apologize uh, for that. Uh, I even know people that married into a rivalry, right? Like Kathy went to Texas A&M. And any Aggies in the room? Whoops. All right, there's one. Uh, so uh, I'm sorry, man. I love you. I love you, Aggies. So uh, then... Uh, that's a house divided, by the way. That's what I'm talking about. Y'all married into a rivalry. You got Texas and you got A&M. Uh, back when the, the Southwest Conference existed, that was a real rivalry. I, I, Kathy went to A&M. I went to Baylor, which isn't a rivalry because uh, Baylor stunk whenever I went to school there. And so it's not much of a rivalry at all. But there are some houses that are divided. 
because of, of these intense rivalries. My point is, is that we understand rivalries and divisions, don't we? I mean, that exists in our, in our cultures. And sometimes these divisions are much more than the superficial games in our culture. Sometimes we feel the hurt and the pain that comes from being excluded or the hurt and the pain that comes from having divisions with people. And in our passage of study this morning, Paul is going to point out the divisions that existed in the early church. And he's going to address the unity that resides even amongst those divisions and the diversity. And then he's going to talk about the result of when that kind of unity is lived out. And so I'm going to take Paul's cues here today. And and the outline that I've set out before us is exactly what just Paul uses. And we're going to talk about the conflict. We're going to look at the connector. And then we're going to take a look at the conclusion, the outcomes that come as a result of the connector unifying us together. And ultimately, let me tell you right off the bat what we're going to see here in our passage of study this morning is that we have a new body. We belong to a new body of believers, and therefore we have more that unites us than that which makes us different. And the reason why is because our vertical relationship with God affects our horizontal relationship with others. Vertical relationship with God always impacts horizontal relationships with others. And I think that today's study is going to serve as a good word for us as Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, Because uh, one of the things I love about what God is doing in the life of our fellowship, our body of believers here, is how he's growing us to be more and more diverse. We have people that are coming from a variety of backgrounds to our church. We have uh, people that are coming from a variety of ethnicities to our church. And we have people that uh, are on all over the map on certain views and differing views that face our culture. But God is bringing us together. And I want us to leave here today as a unified local body of Christ surrounded by Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. And so it's amazing that that we should work to protect such a unity that is in this beautiful thing called church. And so that's what Paul is going to talk about today. Now, I want to remind you uh, that we said in our first uh, study through the book of Ephesians that this book is broken down into two different parts. You you have the theological aspects of the book, that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then you have the practical aspects of the book, which is 4, 5, and 6. The practical builds upon the theological, but even within the theological, there are practical aspects to it. So here in chapter 2, Paul is still in the theological section of the book. And he's building a specific doctrine in our study today called the doctrine of ecclesiology. That's a giant word that you just need to know means the doctrine of the church, the called out ones, the believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to lay out for us this incredible uh, doctrine of of the church as we are part of an amazing institution that has been profound, that has changed the world for over 2,000 years and will continue to do so until the Lord Jesus returns. We're a part of an incredible body of believers that we call church. So let's jump into this passage by first looking at the conflict. Let's look at the conflict that was in the first church. Now, before we read the opening verses, just by way of structure, uh, in case you find this interesting, I do, uh, verses 1 through 10 
are mirrored by verses 11 through 22. What I mean by that is in the first few verses of chapter 2, you have Paul talking about the problem that we all face, that we're all sinners, and, and therefore we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in the middle section of verses 1 through 10, you have the solution to that, that being the Lord Jesus himself. And then in the last part of verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 2, we, we see the outcome of that solution. Well, here in verses 11 through 22, you're going to see the problem that this early church faced, the solution to that problem and the outcome. So you could actually take both of these passages, lay them on top of each other, and they mirror one another. It's kind of an interesting literary discovery here in Ephesians chapter 2. But to bring you up to speed, when Jesus ascended into heaven, after he was raised from the dead, he gave his disciples a mission. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when that happens, you will be my witnesses. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the early disciples took that mission seriously. And they began spreading the gospel everywhere they went, all over the known world at that time. And guess what was happening? People were getting saved. People were trusting in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life. And with that, while that was awesome, came lots of conflict. Because for the first time, now you don't have this unique people in which God is revealing himself to. Now you have God revealing himself to all peoples, all different backgrounds, all different parts of the world with all different kinds of issues. And they're merging together in this thing called church. And it created some conflict there. It created major Conflict, so he addresses it. Let's look at that conflict. Verses 11 and 12, you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. A few things here. When you read the term Gentiles, basically that term just means non-Jews. So what Paul is talking about is he's talking about everyone who was not Jews. That would make you and I most likely uh, I don't know of anybody that's distinctly Jewish in here, but that would make us Gentiles, right? So there were the Jews and then there were the Gentiles. Now notice that these Gentiles were called, and it's in quotations in my Bible, the uncircumcision. And they were called that by those who had been circumcised. Now circumcision was a physical sign uh, of God's covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant meaning that they were children of promise. You remember when God made a covenant with, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your people is going to be as number of the individual grains of sand and all the seashore. And he says, you look at the stars of the sky, and that's going to be the number of your 
offspring. And this was a promise given to Abraham and extended to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. They were the people of the promise. And so here they see themselves through this act, this physical uh, manifestation of this, of this or this reminder of this covenant. They were the circumcision, but they called the Gentiles the uncircumcision. But when they would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, it wasn't kind. It was derogatory. It was meant to be exclusive. It was meant to communicate you're nothing like us. For example, when David and Goliath, when David faced Goliath, uh, David made a comment about Goliath. You remember what he said about Goliath? He called him an uncircumcised Philistine, right? You could hear the derogatory nature in what, in what David called Goliath. That's what's happening here. Now, why is this discussion important? Well, it highlights the conflict. It highlights the division that was not only present in the church in Ephesus, but all over the known world. And it was no small division. It was, in fact, a racial division, a racial conflict. The Gentile believers were called uncircumcised by the Jews. The Jews hated the Gentiles. And guess what? The Gentiles despised the Jews. And I would argue that the Jews had good reason to dislike the Gentiles. Consider their history for just a moment. For thousands of years, they were the object of Gentile mistreatment. You take a look at uh, what happened in Egypt, and they were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Well, what were Egyptians? They were considered non-Jews. They were Gentiles. And then you read throughout the pages of the Old Testament this constant conflict between uh, the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Assyrians that the Jews were constantly having to defend themselves against these Gentiles. And then when Jesus shows up on the scene, who is oppressing the Jews? It's Rome. Who are further Gentiles? And so you see this disdain for those that are Gentiles. Here's what one commentator I read said about this division between the Jews and Gentiles. He says, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. They said that the Gentiles were created by God just to be fuel for the fires of hell. Whoa. That God loved only Israel and of all the nations that he had made. That the best of the serpents should be crushed, but the best of the Gentiles killed. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile woman in childbirth, for that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. Such contact with a Jew, Gentile was equivalent of death, even to go into a Gentile's house rendered a Jew unclean. So you see how much these Jews despised the Gentiles. But guess what? This was a two-way street. The Gentiles also had a disdain for the Jews. Another commentator I read pointed out that in the Jewish temple, there was this sign on the wall. In the temple, there was this court that everybody could come into, and it was called the court of the Gentiles. But if you were to progress deeper into the temple, there were differing rules for that area of the temple. Well, to move from the court of Gentiles to the next court, you would have to pass through a narrow entrance that was surrounded by a wall. And there was a plaque on that wall that read this, 
any Gentile entering beyond this wall will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. Do you see the division that is mounting in this church? Jesus, we are just simply being obedient to you. We're taking the gospel everywhere. And guess what? Gentiles are coming to faith. And guess what, God? They're coming to church. What are we going to do about this? Right? This is the Jews' perspective. And the Gentiles felt excluded. And they're saying, wait a minute. We have the same Jesus. Why are you excluding us? And there was this, this tension that came with the church. In fact, chapters 10 through 15 of Acts is dedicated to dealing with this very division. The Lord even had to do major heart surgery on some of the apostles to get them to understand that there was actually unity and not division. But not only does Paul remind them of the hostile history between the Jews and the Gentiles, but he also reminded the Gentiles of their conflict with God. That they were separated from Christ, he says. That they were alienated from the Jews. In other words, they were strangers to the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, they were hopeless and without a relationship with Almighty God. Simply put, the Gentiles were outsiders. But everything changed at the cross. Everything changed at the cross. So there's this great conflict going on, division in the church, so much so that in verse 14, Paul calls it a wall of hostility between the two. It wasn't just a minor thing. It was a major thing. Now, while we would think, you know, a lot has changed in 2,000 years of church history, a lot still remains the same, especially in this arena. Churches in our day and time are often divided racially. They're divided educationally. They're even divided politically in our culture. They're divided by age. There's the young churches and then there's the old churches. There are even churches that that are uh, divided based upon degree of their sinful past. There are many ways that a church in today's time can be divided in the midst of its walls. And before we just keep this at arm's length, relegating this to an issue to the Ephesians of the first century, beloved, we would do well to heed this and to understand that the enemy would love to work in this arena of division within the bride of Christ. And therefore, it is upon you and upon me to work towards this unity, to maintain this unity, and to protect the unity that is found in the body of Christ in our new body. But how is unity among this drastic differences achieved? I mean, what on earth could possibly unite the Gentiles and the Jews? Well, that's a good question because nothing on earth could unite them, but something from heaven does unite them. That brings us to point number two, which is the connector. Differences in the church exist, but there is a great connector that supersedes the conflict within the church. Let's look at it. Verses 13 through 17 says, but there's that word again, mirrors verse four, division is a problem, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace. Check this out. Who has made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection is the unifying connector for this deeply divided church. He has, in that act, broken down, smashed the wall of divisive hostility between these two people groups. You know, Jesus has torn down any wall that might exist between us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I can remember back whenever I was nine years old and President Reagan was uh, president at that time. And I remember the news broadcasting, um, you know, a particular speech of Ronald Reagan's. Uh, There was this massive wall that separated East Berlin from West Berlin, the Berlin Wall. Any of you guys remember that? Okay, those of you didn't raise your hand, you weren't born yet probably, and that's why you don't remember it. It makes me feel old. So I remember, though, standing at the base of that very wall where people had died because it was a guarded wall. People had died trying to get over that wall to find freedom. And President Reagan standing at that very wall and addressing Mr. Gorbachev. And he made what many historians say are the four most profound words in a speech of his presidency. Four words that defined his presidency. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You remember that? That was on June the 12th, 1987. Well, on November the 9th, 1989, guess what happened? That wall came crumbling down. And what divided uh, worlds apart now united a people together. Well, in much the same way and on a much higher level, Jesus, by his blood shed on the cross at Calvary, has torn down the wall of hostility that might exist between us and any other believer in him. He's torn down that wall. And Paul tells us how he did it. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and preached peace to those who were near. A couple of things I want to point out. First is the word abolishing. That word in the original language means to remove all power from. It doesn't mean to do away with. It means to remove power from. Jesus didn't destroy the law. No, he fulfilled the law. See, Jesus lived a perfect life, therefore becoming the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb that took our place upon the cross where you and I could not possibly begin to fulfill all the letters of the law, Jesus did it for us. 
And so therefore, Paul is saying that he rendered it powerless. He rendered the law powerless. And thereby, the way of the cross, he killed hostility that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. See, the Jews were very legalistic. Well, I'm holy. I'm accepted by God because of how I keep the law of God. And there's no way the Gentile could ever keep the law of God, and therefore I'm somebody special. That's the way the Jews viewed it. But here's what Paul said. No, no, no. The law caused you to realize you were messed up because you can't fulfill the law, even in yourself, even as a Jew. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your lineage. You cannot fulfill the law and thereby needed Jesus. Well, guess what? The Gentiles could not fulfill the law and thereby needed Jesus. So you know what? You're all one and the same. That's what Paul is saying. There's no division here. You're one and the same. You're both sinners. And Paul says that he did this because he preached peace to those who were far off. Well, who's the ones that are far off? Well, they're far off from the promise of Abraham, that being the Gentiles. But then Paul also says that Jesus came and preached peace, which is the same message to those who were near. Well, who are the ones that are near? The Jews. And what Paul is saying is this, our vertical relationship with Jesus affects our horizontal relationship with one another. There's power here. There's unity here because there's a great connector. Both sets of people were dead in their trespasses and sins, and both sets of people can come alive through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what Paul is driving at. He's saying that the division that the Ephesian church is experiencing, the conflict that existed, would simply all dissipate if they would remember that everyone was in fact isolated from the promise of God. But that God, in His grace and in His mercy, rescued whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, and He did so by His own blood upon the cross at Calvary. And then in verse 18, we learn that faith in Jesus as Lord gives both Jews and Gentiles access to God the Father, making us, therefore, brothers and sisters. So we've looked at the conflict. We've discovered the connector. Now let's look at Paul's conclusion, the conclusion that he comes to. Because the conflict in the church has been solved by Jesus, there are some amazing outcomes. Let's begin looking at him in verse 18. Paul says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In those verses we see three conclusions, three outcomes to the unity in Christ. First is we all have access to God. We all have access to God. Paul says that plainly. For through him, that's through Jesus, we both have access. 
In other words, salvation is made available to all Jews and Gentiles. And did you know this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy? You remember on the night that Jesus was born, the shepherds keeping watch over their flock at night, and the angels appeared to them. You remember what they said to those angels? Do not be afraid, for we bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. It was God's plan through Jesus to redeem the world to himself. It wasn't just for one people. It wasn't for just a few people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And look at what he says. He says, for through Christ we both have access in one spirit. The same Holy Spirit that does not discriminate except on the basis that one believes in Jesus indwells every single believer. The same Spirit of God that indwells me is the same Spirit of God that indwells you. And since that is the case, beloved, we don't gain a seat in this sanctuary because we are somebody. Our prayers aren't heard on the basis that we know somebody, oh, but that we know Jesus and only Jesus. We aren't chosen by God because of our lineage. No, what we are is wretched sinners apart from Christ, but God, being rich in mercy, rescued each and every one of us. That's who we are. And we're all in the same boat. How's that for having something in common? We all have access to God. The second outcome is that we are all a part of the same family. And when I say we all, of course I am predicating that on those who have trusted Jesus as Lord. The only exclusion to the family of God is that you don't believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life. Oh, but if you do, you and I are a part of the same family of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know what Paul is saying there when he says that? He's saying, listen, Jews, Gentiles, y'all better learn to get along because if you can't, heaven's going to be terrible for you. You remember what John sees when he's writing the book of Revelation and he sees the throne of Jesus? He says there are people there from every tribe every nation, every tongue, and they're all praising the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's this unity. And what Paul is saying, listen, Jews, Gentiles, you better learn to get along with each other because you're going to be doing it for all of eternity. All right. It does not matter your race. It does not matter your location. It does not matter your socioeconomic status, your dress, your age. If you are in Christ, you are no longer strangers, but we are family. And that means for those of us that are believers in Christ, we have more in common with each other than we differ. In fact, beloved, if we are in Christ, we have more in common with the believer on the other side of the globe whom we have never met than the unsaved person across the street that votes the same way we do. 
We are part of a family of God. We belong to this new body of believers that are redeemed and rescued. We all have access to God. We're all part of the same family. The third conclusion that Paul comes to is that we all share the same purpose. If we are in Christ, we share the same purpose. Look at verses 20 and 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about building a building. I mean, he talks about being built into a holy temple. Is he talking about a literal building? No. He's talking about the church. Not a particular church. He's not even talking about a church building. He's talking about a people. You and I are the church. Listen, the church is not brick and mortar. The church is people and purpose. It doesn't matter if we have these facilities. We can meet under an awning. And we still have the fuel and the partnership bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that church. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Lord. And you remember what, what Jesus said to that very confession? He said, and I, I say that you are Peter, which means rock, And upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon the confession that I am Lord, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus wasn't talking about rebuilding a temple there. He's talking about building a body of believers. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about those that will come to faith in him. That is what he is building. And so we're united in purpose in the building of his church. In the ancient world, the cornerstone was the first rock placed and used to establish the foundation of the building. Listen, this church does not stand on any preacher. This church does not stand on any minister. This church does not stand on any elder. This church stands on the personal work of Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the commander-in-chief of this flock of believers. And that is true of all churches that are founded in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and he says, the foundation, so the cornerstone is Jesus. The foundation is, quote, the apostles and the prophets. Well, what is that talking about? It's talking about their teaching. Remember, we did not, they did not have the New Testament. They were literally writing the New Testament under the direction of the Holy Spirit at this time. And so what Paul was essentially saying and what he would be saying to us, therefore, is not only is Jesus the chief cornerstone, but the Word of God is the foundation on which we build everything. Listen, we build it upon the infallible, powerful, very Word of God. That is our 
foundation. And the Holy Spirit is the power at work in and through the church. And listen, the whole structure is joined together for a purpose. We are unified in our purpose. Oh, we come from many different backgrounds in this room. And we don't all look alike. Praise the Lord, because some of y'all are ugly. I saw some spouses giving the elbow. I I don't know. Maybe y'all need counseling afterwards. But listen, no, no, no. We may have differing views on some things, but we are united in our purpose, founded upon the Word of God, fueled by the Holy Spirit to carry out His mission in the world. And you know what? We could be united in that. That there is a people that is lost. That if their lives were demanded of them this very moment, that they would spend eternity apart from God in a real place called hell. And beloved, if we can't be united in taking the gospel to them, then what are we doing here? We're united in purpose. Paul says that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, we work in this building process. We worship by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit. And we do this not only that we grow, but we do this that others might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and get brought into the fold of the family of God. That's our purpose. And any differences we have among each other is minimized by the fact that we are all sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's break down the walls of hostility that may exist between us. Let's be united around our great connector, given access to God as a part of the family of God and given a very shared purpose for God's kingdom. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.